We are so glad to have you here today worshiping with us if you are in the room or if you're online. We're glad to be worshiping with you today. Well, this last week I was watching Thursday Night Football because if you watched our Thursday update, we told you that the Asker family is getting into fantasy football this year. So everybody in our family has a team. Uh, So the five of us, and then you need an even number, so we invited uh, my dad to join us. So it's uh, my dad plus the five of us playing fantasy football, and I will tell you and admit to you that I am not very good. I am 0-3 so far, and I'm projected to lose today. So uh, I did get some help, though. Austin uh, was helping out this past Friday with the Rosa Parks DoorDash team, as we like to call ourselves. We deliver lunches for the kids at Rosa Parks Elementary every Friday, and we had some people help out on Thursday, so nice job. That was cool. But he helped me out, so I proposed some trades. So if you want to accept those trades, uh, my dad and Sandy, that would help me out. Uh, Maybe I could win a few games. Uh, But we were watching Thursday Night Football, and uh, the kids wanted to see the game because we have players in these games now. And uh, so we're watching it. We turn it on, and the first commercial comes on is a political ad, right? We're in campaign season. And... It wasn't a campaign for any particular uh, person, you know, any candidate. It was a campaign that was aimed at a particular group of people. The message was, we are Latinos. We are one. Let's get out and vote. It was interesting because it was a commercial that I didn't necessarily resonate with because I'm not Latino. But I did resonate with the idea of getting the vote out, so nice job. But what was interesting to me was that In getting ready for this sermon, I thought about the fact that that perfectly created an image of what we're going to be talking about today. And uh, in 1979, there was a psychologist named Henry Chajfell, I believe is his name, who came up with this idea of social identity, that we tend to flock into groups that are similar. We create these social groups that provide a great sense of pride and sense of belonging in our social world. And so this was identifying the, the Latino group. He said that, you know, we sort of exaggerate our differences and our similarities to form these groups, and it sort of creates this us-versus-them mentality, and it can create this in-and-out group mentality, right? Because you're a part of the group, I'm not a part of the group. And we experience this on a regular basis in our culture. And I experienced it a little bit on Thursday night with that advertisement, right? There are other uh, examples, more extreme examples maybe, the Hutus and the Tutsis from the Rwandan crisis, if you remember that back in the mid-90s. Or, for those of you who are sports fans, the Yankees and the Red Sox, or the Packers and the Vikings. Or in politics, we have the conservatives and the liberals. We have these identities that we carry around with us. And what's interesting is that we kind of do the same thing in religion, right? We have the Catholics, the Methodists, the Baptists, and we're the Evangelical Covenant. And we create these identities around these things, and to some degree, you know, denominations, man, I can't get that out, denominations are kind of declining because, you know, people aren't interested in these divisions anymore. We want to be together, which I think is a good thing. But we still create this sense of like, well, who's in? Who's in the kingdom? Who is a Christian and who's not a Christian? We ask those sorts of questions still yet today. So who's going to heaven? Who's not? Who's a Christian? Who's not? And in today's passage, 
as we kind of look at today's passage, we're going to see that Jesus blows up people's minds. So have you ever thought about some of those things? Who's in, who's out? Am I in? Am I out? Am I in the kingdom? Am I a Christian? Well, today, Jesus surprises his disciples with who he includes in the kingdom of God, who he includes in as his followers. So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12, and it's the beginning of Jesus' most famous sermon, most famous teaching. It's known as the Sermon on the Mount. And those who first heard this sermon would have immediately began to wonder, am I in or am I out? Am I in the kingdom or out of the kingdom? Man, this is crazy because it's unexpected. The things that Jesus said are unexpected. So it's a challenging sermon. You might start this sermon because we are modern 20th century people. You might start your, this sermon by nodding. Oh yeah, we should include those people. Yep, we should include those people. But if you, if you listen and you keep staying present and you're honest with yourself, I think eventually most of us are going to start to go, really? And some of us might even start going, no, that can't be. Because it's an unexpected sermon. He challenges us. And so I'm hoping that it will be very intriguing for us. And it was for those who first heard it because it says after this, Matthew tells us that they were amazed at his teaching. It says that crowds started to follow him. And I'm hopeful that that will be true for us too because we're going to be in this sermon series for basically the rest of this fall. We're going to be walking through line by line the Sermon on the Mount and I think it's going to be really challenging for us. It's going to be unexpected. So let's get started with the first part known as the Beatitudes. So, now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. So the first thing we learn in this is his audience. It says the disciples came to him. And I want you to kind of get in mind that these are the people who followed him. Sometimes we think of the disciples as the 12. I think it's more than that in this case. It's probably even referring to those who are at the, be- at the end of chapter 4. There are all sorts of people that have come that are part of the crowd. They're from the Decapolis. They're Jews. They're Gentiles. It's kind of a diverse group of people that have come. And so he's got a crowd. He goes up to the mountain, and some of them follow him to this place. And we could call those the disciples, because what does it mean to be a disciple? It means to be a follower. So we have this diverse group of people that have come to listen to Jesus teach. And this is what he says. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Now that word blessed, we need to stop and take a moment and look at, because it's going to be repeated nine times over the course of the next several verses. So it's key to the understanding of this passage. And unfortunately, that word blessed, the word in Greek is makarios. And it's really hard to translate to English. But it's probably connected to Abraham, God's original chosen people, and the way that he chose them to be to bless. But because the Old Testament and New Testament are in different languages, we don't know for sure whether or not it's exactly the same. It also likely includes happiness or human flourishing, but scholars agree that it's so much more than that. Scott McKnight, in my prep 
if you want to be a little bit of a geek and go really deep, you can check out. He's got five different themes that he thinks it includes, major themes, and a little bit more. But for us today, we won't geek out quite that much. I think it's enough for us to know it's something that we all want. You want to be blessed. It's good. So he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And these first three kind of form a theme that comes around the idea of humility of the poor. So he may have in mind this people group called the Anawim people. It's poor people who remained faithful to God in spite of their difficulties that they faced. Poor in spirit, this idea definitely has an economic piece to it because if we look at the Sermon on the Mount in Luke, Luke just says, blessed are the poor. But Matthew adds in the spirit, stressing that there is some sort of an internal condition of the heart in spite of the external circumstances that they're able to stay in this sense of still trusting in God. He goes on to talk about those who mourn, you know, those who are wrestling with what's happening in the world. And if we look at that, we have to kind of wonder, well, what are they mourning? And I think if we look at the historical context, we can look back at uh, chapters uh, 40 through 61 of Isaiah that kind of give us an idea of what the Israelites were thinking back then. And if we look specifically at chapter 61, we can see that Jesus actually uses this in Luke. He says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has appointed me, anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, and to comfort all who mourn. So there's this sense in this that he's comforting those who are experiencing God's kingdom, and they're experiencing kind of the difficulties that that's not the reality that they're living in today. They're not experiencing those sorts of freedoms that is talked about in Isaiah 40 through 61. And then the meek are those who experience sort of suffering, but they never take revenge. They sort of have this nonviolent approach to life. It's in stark contrast to the zealots who are violently taking land. And what's interesting about that is that what the meek get is they get the earth, which is probably better translated to land. And that's that stark contrast between the zealots who are taking land by force and the meek who are standing in this resistance but not doing it in a physical way. And then we see that the poor in spirit get the kingdom of heaven, the mourn get comforted. And the interesting thing is that the people listening that day would have gone, really? Those are the people who are blessed? That just doesn't make sense. Don't we want material blessing? Isn't that a sign of the kingdom? If I get blessed materially, isn't God blessing me? So they're confused. They're wondering, what in the world are you talking about, Jesus? This is really strange things. Well, Jesus continues, and these next three kind of circle around the idea of justice and righteousness. So he says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And this idea of righteousness that he talks about 
is this idea of loving God and loving others. It's a longing for others to experience God's love. It considers the poor and those who are struggling, those who are oppressed, the fatherless. Again, this idea coming out of Isaiah chapter 40 uh, through 61. The merciful are those who are willing to enter into others' pain. And then the pure in heart are those probably who are willing to do those previous things, but they're willing to do it without receiving any social honor. They're not doing it to get approval from others. They're doing it because that's the right thing that God calls us to do, to serve others. And what we see is that their desires become reality. So those who hunger are filled. They're satiated. They're satisfied. The mercy, the people who are merciful, they get this divine mercy at the end of uh, the age. And those who are pure in heart get to see God. And again, the people are left wondering, what in the world, Jesus? Why are you blessing these people? I don't get it. Most people want recognition for their good deeds, and most people find it really hard to enter into other people's pain. Those just aren't things that you would normally want to do. These last three are kind of thinking about those who are uh, into peace and bringing peace. So he says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of, of heaven. And blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets, who were before you. So this idea of peacemakers isn't a passivity thing. It's not a passive peacemaker like the anti, like doing something against somebody. This is an act of get in the middle between two warring parties and bringing peace. And then Matthew doubles down on the persecution idea with the last two, blessing them, giving them the kingdom of heaven, and giving them this blessing, this reward in heaven. They receive this idea of being children of God. They get the kingdom of God, and they get a reward. And again, most people are sitting there going, I don't get it. Why are you blessing these people? It just doesn't make sense. Nobody wants to be persecuted. Nobody wants to stand in the middle of two warring parties and be a mediator. It certainly isn't who I would have brought into the kingdom. And so the question for us today, as we listen to this passage, and who Jesus includes in the kingdom of God, the question for us is, who do we let in? Who do we let into the kingdom of God? And who do we keep out? And more importantly, as a church, who do we welcome into our church? And who do we exclude from our church? for whatever reason. We're called to be countercultural, just like Jesus was in this sermon, calling people that they were not expecting into the kingdom. We are called to do the same. But the world pushes people out. Think about some of our TV shows that we have. Survivor votes people off the island. You're gone. The Apprentice, you're fired, right? 
These are the things that our world does. But what I think is interesting is that there are subtle ways that we as Christians do the same thing. So a couple examples. In the last couple weeks, I've heard people literally say, I just don't understand how you can be a Christian and vote for, and I've heard people put in both presidential candidates. And while technically they are not saying you cannot be a Christian, the way that it's said makes me hear, and I think many people hear, you cannot be a Christian and vote for fill in the blank. So how we speak matters. And sometimes without knowing it, we can alienate people. We can make them feel excluded or pushed out. And we need to be careful. The second example that I was thinking about, I experienced this week, and I've experienced it many times. I've heard people talking about, is that person a Christian? I just don't know. And there's sort of a conversation, often it's a famous person that we're talking about. And we need to be careful because we are not the judge of who is in the kingdom and who is out of the kingdom or whether or not that particular person is a Christian. We're in danger of being a little bit like the disciples and the broader Jewish community in this passage. When Jesus told them who was in the kingdom, they were like, really? I just don't think so. We can do the same thing. But Jesus was including people that they didn't expect. And I like the way that Dallas Willard put it. He said, blessed are the physically repulsive. Blessed are those who smell bad, the twisted, mishappen, and deformed. The too big, the too little, too loud, the bald, the fat, and the old. For they are all riotously celebrated in the party of Jesus. So what can we do, church? How can we bring that kind of a blessed into our community, into the city of Mankato, the places where we live, work, and breathe? Well, number one, I think we can stop trying to be the judge. Let God be the judge. He decides and he knows who's in the kingdom and who's not. We can welcome people like Jesus did. So if we're not judging, what do we do? I think we invite people. We welcome people into our church, just like Jesus did. It's part of our core strategy here at Crossview. We invite people. But I think it's also the Jesus strategy. It's what he's doing here in the Sermon on the Mount today. He's including people that everybody else was going, really? He's including them in the kingdom. And here's the thing. Whether you've been following Jesus for decades or you've been following Jesus or you've never followed Jesus, you can take a deeper step in your relationship with Jesus. There's always an invitation that God has for us to deepen our relationship with him. And as Jesus followers, we're called to extend that invitation to our friends and our, to our community. We get to join Jesus in inviting people into the kingdom. The Sermon on the Mount is going to go through a variety of different ways, invitations that we can grow deeper in our relationship with Jesus. And we can join Jesus in inviting other people into that same thing. Rebecca Pippert, famous evangelist, 
tells the story of a homeless guy who's disheveled and comes into a church. His shoes are off. He looks tattered, and he sits down because he feels unworthy of sitting down in the pew. He sits down at the back of the church, and the whole church kind of looks. And then, while he's sitting there, a leader in the church stands up and starts to walk towards him. And everybody's watching, wondering, what's he going to do? When he gets to the man, he takes his shoes off, and he sits down next to the man and joins him. And I can't help but wonder, what would it look like for us to take our shoes off and to walk in and welcome people into the kingdom, into our church, so that they can hear the message of Jesus, that God loves them. Could we be a church that does that? Let's pray. God, thank you for your word, a reminder that you are including so many more people than we expect, and that you are celebrating them. And would you help us to be a welcoming church and let you be the judge about who is in and who's out. We pray these things in your holy name. Amen.